I want to start tonight by imagining this scenario. Suppose there's somebody who wants to learn everything the Bible has to say on the subject of marriage. You know, they're like, I want to, I want to develop a theology of marriage. And so they crack open the Bible and they study very closely, very studiously. Deuteronomy chapter 24, they look at Matthew 19, they look at 1 Corinthians 7. They develop an entire belief system, a theology, a structure of, of view on the subject of marriage. That's going to be problematic. Anybody know why? Those three chapters only deal with the subject of divorce. Now, divorce is obviously closely related to marriage. Um, they kind of are, they go hand in hand. And certainly the way that a marriage ends is an important consideration, but it's not the only consideration. If you wanted to develop a theology of marriage, then you would look at all the passages in the Bible, the ones that talk about what love actually is, the, the ones that talk about why God ordained and established marriage in the first place, what a healthy marriage looks like, what a healthy marriage is supposed to represent or reflect, all of those things and the passages about divorce. But you wouldn't only look at those because that's too narrow uh, a slice of the conversation to actually give you a sense of what the Bible teaches on the subject. I think the subject of women in ministry, in leadership, the relationship of men and women does a little bit of the same thing. As we mentioned last week, there are six verses in the New Testament that are primarily cited to kind of dictate um, what we believe about the nature of women and their relationships with men and things like that. But then there are dozens, hundreds even of other verses throughout the scripture that deal with the exact same subject. They just come at it from a different perspective. And so if we want to develop a really solid understanding of what the scripture teaches, we can't look at only these narrow verses. We do need to look at those narrow verses. Okay, those six verses that I talked about are God-inspired, they're in the Bible for a reason. We should not try to ignore them or cut them out or anything, but we can't only look at those verses. We've got to look at all the different verses that would talk about it. So today, what I want to do is I want to talk about the origin of male and female in the Bible, the beginning relationships between the first man and the first woman. What does the Bible actually say was present at creation and then present during the curse and what's not there? Maybe some things that we have believed the Bible says, but it doesn't actually. I want to dig into that. So tonight is going to be a lot of like Bible study. It's going to be in-depth, kind of line by line, going through three chapters in particular and, and examining what does the scripture actually teach happened with men and women in the beginning. So the question we want to ask tonight and, and hopefully answer or at least address is do the creation and curse narratives of Genesis 1 through 3 teach that women are subordinate to men. If we look at Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, is there any evidence, is there strong evidence that women were created in lesser status or for a complementary role in comparison to men? So there are two creation accounts of humanity. The first one is, of course, Genesis 1. The second one is in Genesis 2. These are not in contradiction or conflict with one another. You know, the easiest way to kind of look at it is Genesis 1 describes like the broad overview of what God did on every day. And then Genesis 2 describes kind of a zoomed in view of what happened on day six when God created humanity itself. So let's begin in Genesis chapter number one, verses 27 to 31. We have those verses on the screen. If somebody would just kind of read those aloud, I know the text is maybe a little bit small, but if you'll just read those verses for us, that'll give us a baseline as we start the discussion. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So this is the passage here in Genesis 1 that details the creation of male and female, man and woman. And we see from this passage that pre-fall humanity, that is man and woman before they ever sinned in their original 
perfect state, that pre-fall humanity was characterized by equality. Okay, so we've got a few blanks here, and I want to. The reason I have these verses on the screen is I want you guys to follow along with me, so you can see what I'm talking about here. Um, first, we note that in Genesis one verse twenty-seven, God gave both men and women equal being. Okay, equal being. That's the blank there. They are both created in His image, and we talked last week about the fact that both egalitarians and complementarians agree on this. Nobody denies it. Women are created in the image of men. Now, that sounds obvious to us, but it has not been obvious throughout history. And in fact, there are still worldviews and religions and things that do not teach that. You guys are familiar probably with Aristotle, the ancient philosopher. Very famously in one of his lectures, he taught that women were deformed men, that you were a lesser form of the ideal which was masculine, and you guys just didn't quite get there. Now, he went on at great length about how fortunate it was that you were deformed and different because it made it very easy for us to come together and have children and sex and all of those different things. But his view was that women were ontologically lesser than men. So when we come to the Hebrew scriptures and we discover that, no, in the very beginning, the Bible explicitly says that God created male and female as equals, uh, as having the same uh, being, the same value. They have the same image-bearing characteristic and quality. That really is revolutionary, and it's worth noting. In verse 28, uh, the first part of verse 28 there, we see that God gave them equal blessing. That's the second blank. God gave Adam and Eve equal blessing. So you'll notice in the text, it says, God blessed the man and said, get your son, be fruitful and multiply. No, it says God blessed them, He plural. He blessed both of them in the same way. He gave them the exact same blessing that is to be fruitful and to multiply. We see next in uh, the latter part of verse 28, God gave both Adam and Eve equal responsibility. So if you look here in Genesis 1, they are given tasks. They are given a job, a role, a function to fulfill here on earth. And you see there, the function is to image God, to represent him. That is to fill the earth and to subdue it, to reign in his stead, so to speak. And it doesn't take a very close reading to see that Adam and Eve are both given that exact same command. Eve is commanded in the same way as Adam to fill the earth and then to subdue it and rule over it as God's image bearer. So they both have the same responsibility. Uh, and then lastly, in verses 29 and 30 here of Genesis 1, we see that God gave them equal provision, equal provision. He uh, gave them all the seed-bearing plants of the ground as food. He gave them the things that move along the ground. They had equal provision. There was no sense in which Adam had special access to things that Eve didn't. There was nothing that God said, all right, this is going to be off limits for you, Eve. Your husband can enjoy, you cannot. So when we look at the Genesis 1 narrative here, there is nothing in these verses that would indicate that women were created to be subordinate to men, that there is any difference in their creation. We see their being, blessing, responsibility, and provision being exactly equal. Now, maybe I'm missing something. So do you guys see anything in this passage, in this set of verses, that would lead you to believe there is some dichotomy in the sex, some subordination that's intended here of females. And maybe you do. I'm, I'm genuinely asking the question. No. Okay. And, and I would say that most even complementarians agree that um, if you are going to find some evidence of a, a subordination of women or a headship of men, you're going to find it in Genesis 2, not in Genesis 1. And maybe that's because Genesis 1 is the zoomed out version. It's the 30,000 foot version. So it doesn't really get into all the details. But when we get into the details, complementarians are quick to say there are some things that are going on in the text that hint at the idea that males are supposed to be head, um, that women are supposed to be subordinate. And I want to highlight what they say and then offer a response maybe to what is um, typically said about Genesis chapter number two. So, Brian, if you don't mind, if you'll click over to Genesis 2 for us so that we've got um, that passage on the screen. And maybe if somebody wants to read that out loud for us, I know it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but it'll be worthwhile. 
the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay, so there are typically four things that are pointed out in the passage that we just read that might indicate that uh, God intended for male headship from the very beginning. In a pre-fallen, perfect state, there are four little details in this text that are often used to, to advance that idea. You might have heard of them before, or you might even pick them out from the passage. Any ideas? Do we want to guess at like some things that are typically used to, uh, to support that idea? Okay, so she was the helper. That actually turns out to be blank number one. The woman is called the man's helper in verse number 18. And the idea here is that by calling her the helper, it indicates that she has a, a lesser role, a subordinate role. So imagine a, a dad that's working on the sink and he needs his eight-year-old son to pass him the tools. He's daddy's little helper, right? There is a sense in which we could use that word helper to indicate that a woman is lesser in ability or position, function or role. And her job then is to support the man, to support Adam in what he is called to do and what he's supposed to do. Um, now, there are a lot of problems with that theory or that particular approach. Um, a, don't forget we just read a few verses earlier that Adam and Eve were given the exact same role and tasks. So it's not like Adam was called to rule creation and Eve was supposed to help him fulfill his calling here on earth. They were both called to do this. So the helper in the way that we kind of use it in the modern sense of daddy's little helper, that little example I gave, um, that's certainly not what that means. In fact, the word helper is a very, very weak translation of the Hebrew word here. Um, I could I could call it a real bad translation. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm not going to pretend like I have the authority to say that. But if you do any reading on this with people who are Hebrew scholars, they're all going to agree. Helper is just a, it's it's either too soft or too general of a word. It doesn't really describe accurately uh, the word. So uh, the Hebrew word for helper in this passage is ezer, ezer, okay, E-Z-E-R. You've got that in your notes. And that word, um, it, it, yes, you could understand why they would translate it as helper because the most literal rendering of this is one who brings aid to someone else, one who brings aid. Somebody needs help. So, okay, yeah, helper maybe makes sense. But again, we tend to look at it through the lens of, you know, a strong person who needs just a little extra hand, right? But you could also look at helper in a very different way. And in fact, in the scripture, it's used in a very different way. So um, one of the most common ways, in fact, the second most common way that the word ezer is used in the Hebrew Bible is to describe somebody who needs aid in a military battle. So you're at war, the Israelites are at war with the Canaanites. Maybe the, the tribe of Benjamin is at war with a neighboring tribe and he gets an Azer from another one of the Israelite tribes. So imagine Ben's getting his butt kicked, his people are on the verge of defeat and then here comes Judah riding in with the cavalry and they end up turning the tide of the battle, okay? Judah is the Azer, he's the helper in this situation. But who's the weak one? Who's the weak one? It was Benjamin, right? He was the one that needed help. He was the one that was going to be defeated. He was the one that was going to lose unless he had a helper come along. So we see in the way that this word is used, even amongst humans, uh, being an Azer doesn't necessarily mean that you have a lesser position. It doesn't mean that you occupy a, a space of weakness 
or, um, you know, subordination or anything like that. I note here um, that the person that is most often called in Isaiah in the Bible is God. Okay. So if there's any doubt that the word helper in Genesis chapter number two, verse 18 is meant to intimate or teach that Eve is less than God. If there's any doubt, a recognition that this word is most commonly applied to God would show that that's not the case. Being an Azer does not mean that you are subordinate, that you are less than, that you are a helper in that sense that we might typically think. So I quote a few examples. There are lots of them. Deuteronomy 33, 26 to 29, Psalm 33, 20, and Psalm 115, verses 9 to 11. In all of those cases, God is called a help, right? I look to the hills where my help, my Azer comes from. That's, that's referring to God. In no way, shape, or form is God subordinate to anybody he helps. So when we see the word Azer in Genesis 2, we don't want to read too much into that. The text itself does not support that understanding. If we ever have questions about the way one verse should be translated, we compare that verse to how the word or phrase is used in other parts of the Bible, and that gives us a sense of how we should understand it. And if you compare scripture to scripture, when it comes to this word Azer, you learn very quickly, the answer is, uh, this does not indicate any sort of subordinate role. And you know what, for me, understanding this helper lingo was so important because I think some spiritual abuse can come from just this phrase. I don't know if any woman in the room has been told this before, but I've totally had men of the church come up to me and say, you are such a good help me. Like, I don't know what it is about that phrase in yeah. particular that just turns my guts and I'm like, shut up. <laughs> like, um, but, but understand. And, and so there, why does it, so let's, uh, sorry, before we get too yeah, far, I'm going to talk about why, why? it bugs me. Okay. So, so it comes across like that person is saying your purpose in life is to elevate him and to make him look good. Now I love doing that. And I don't know if I do a good job of that, but we do that for each other. Right. And it is not supposed to be, it's all about you, babe. Like, I elevate you. You are the king. You know what I mean? Like, and um, like, I don't think he wants that. And, and, and for some random dude in the church to come at me and be like, you're such a good help me. And to like insinuate that that is my purpose, that is my calling, and not see the actual calling in my life, like ticks me off than no other. <laughs> like, I just it gets under my skin because you're missing the point, and you're you're making me to be something that not God has not put me in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I, yeah. No. It's good, and I think actually you bring up um, you bring up that phrase "help meet." You guys have heard that before. Do we know where that phrase comes from? From the King James Bible, right? So it literally says, God, yeah, old King Jimmy, man. And um, we get so many phrases from him and that's it. So if you read Genesis um, 2.18, what it says is, um, and I, I can't remember the quote exactly. It's been a long time since I've read or used the King, King James. But anyway, um, that God would create a help meet, a help that is meet. That word meet, M-E-E-T, is an old English word that means appropriate for. A helper that is appropriate. And in actuality, that is a very accurate understanding of the Hebrew here. So we said the word helper is azer. The word meet or appropriate for is konegdo. I can't even say it correctly, konegdo. And um, what it means is, this is such an interesting, it's a very hard word to translate. What it means is somebody who is appropriate for, but the most literal understanding of what this word means is one who is like against you. That is the, like, God has created you in Azer who is like against, or a different way to put it is same opposite. That is a really beautiful phrase with a lot of nuance. Man, you could dig into that for a long time. Now, complementarians will focus on the against or opposite side of that, and they'll say, oh, well, it says right there, you're different, you're something else. But I think we can't overlook the fact that it says same. And in the context of the verses that we're reading again and again, the scripture is highlighting the sameness between the men 
and the woman. All right. So uh, this Azer connect go. This is the uh, phrase that's used, and it literally means a helper who is appropriate for you. So in reality, this guy, whoever it might be, this uh, you know theoretical guy that calls you a great helpmeet, that's a wonderful thing, and it's a. It, I would say it's almost a badge of honor in a sense if he's using it the correct right. way. If he's using it to mean you're a good little helper to your hubby, then that is not, that's not what this passage, yes, it's very weird, very weird, okay? All right. Um, Ada Spencer is an author, and she had this incredible line. I absolutely loved it. She said this, the woman wasn't created to serve the man, but to serve with the man. And I think that's it, okay? See, um, we're gonna learn once we get to Genesis 3, the biggest problem that happened with Adam and Eve both is that they stopped obeying God and they started obeying one another. They stopped valuing God first and they started valuing what the other one said most. That turning is incredibly important to understanding what's going on here because pre-fall, before we get to any sin, in the original um, paradise state of humanity, Man, uh, woman was not created to serve the man, but she was created to serve with the man. So uh, woman was called helper. I don't think that's enough to justify saying that women have a subordinate role or men should be head. Um, there are three others. Any ideas what they might be here in the text? How about the fact that the man, Adam, named the woman in verse 23? That's, that's the next blank there. The man named the woman. So um, what complementarian theology will do is they'll say, okay, if you look, God called Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 to name the animal, in Genesis 2 in particular, to name the animals, right? So we read earlier in the chapter, all the animals come by, and he's like giraffe, hippopotamus, parakeet, or whatever the Hebrew equivalent of those you know, animals are. He's naming them, and that is an exercise of his authority over them right? That's part of what God told him to do was to rule and reign over creation. Uh, now, if God, if Adam naming the animals was an indication of his authority over them, then complementarians would say the fact that he named the female, he called her woman, Isha is the word, and then later he called her Eve, Chavah, I believe is the Hebrew word, um, the fact that he gave her her name is parallel to the fact that he gave the animals the name. And so if he gave the animals the name as an exercise of authority, he gave Eve her name as an exercise of authority. So let me give you a few thoughts here. Um, the first thing that you have to recognize is that um, the scripture is so clear that his naming of the animals was not an act of authority. Instead, it was an act of discernment. Okay, when you read in verse number 20, what does it say there? It says, after he named all the animals, he did not find a helper suitable for him. The phrase is the exact same one we just talked about. Amongst all the animals, Adam did not find this Ezer Connecto. It just wasn't there. So the point here, God didn't bring him the animals so that he could name them and exercise his authority. In fact, if we look at it, he hadn't even been given the command to rule over creation yet because that didn't come till Genesis 2 when the woman was already present, okay? So instead, the point of bringing all the animals in front of him was to say, would this be a good life partner for you? No, I don't want that. Would this be a good life partner? Well, it'd be a good pet, God, but I don't think it's gonna be somebody that I wanna devote my life to, right? The whole point was to show that in all of creation, there was not a suitable helper for the man. So to say that he did it as an act of authority is, again, not borne out by what the text actually says here. Um, also note in Genesis 2.20, it never says, and after seeing all the animals that were there, he never found an appropriate subordinate over which to rule. It doesn't say that. It says he didn't find a helpmeet. He didn't find a proper partner, okay? Then the idea that naming something necessarily communicates authority is untrue. It, just, it logically does not hold up. So imagine a scientist and he discovers a star in the galaxy far away and he names it Beetlejuice, <laughs> which is actually a real star name. You guys know that, right? I don't know why, but it is. So does the scientist that named that star, does he own the star? Does the star obey him? 
Does he have authority over the star? No, of course not. Because naming something doesn't mean that you have authority over it. It just doesn't work that way. If you want to put this matter to bed completely, all you have to do is read Genesis chapter number 16 and verse 3. And in Genesis 16, 3, you find that Hagar, Abraham's mistress, his slave wife, she names God. She calls him El Roy. She gives him a name that nobody had ever used in scripture before. She's the only person in the Hebrew Bible, the only woman anyway, that gives God a specific name. So if Adam naming Eve was an act of authority over her, then necessarily Hagar naming God was an act of authority over him. But again, nobody believes that Hagar had authority over God. So when we use these hermeneutics, these ways of studying the scripture, we have to be consistent in how we apply them across texts throughout the scripture. And if we do that in this case, using this complementarian lens or worldview, then we end up with some really, really weird stuff, okay? Then I'll point out one last thing, and that is um, Adam does name Eve, okay? It's kind of weird because um, Adam's name, it, it do you know what Adam means? Do you guys know? It, it means what? What did you say? No, not quite. Not quite. It's used to represent the first man. Yes. Adam literally means dirt. The, the most literal, here's the most literal rendering of the word Adam is earthling. One who is made of earth. Okay. Earthling, which is very cool to me. Um, okay. So the name Adam is used both at, for the race of humanity. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you'll find that God, um, he called them uh, male and female, and God blessed them. Again and again in the Hebrew, it uses the phrase Adam to refer to both the man and the woman because it can function as the umbrella term for human or humanity. It can also represent the first man as kind of an archetype for all men that are ever going to live. We'll talk about that in Romans 5 a little bit later tonight. And then it can definitely be used and most often is used for the individual Adam. That was what his proper name was as far as we know. It functions on all of these different levels. Interestingly, um, in, in uh, oh gosh, where is it? Genesis um, 20, ooh, 23, 24. He says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman right? That word there is uh, Isha. It's not Chava, Eve, okay? So he is calling her a woman, which is a description. He's not giving her a name. When he does give her that name of Eve, it happens in Genesis 3 after the fall. So he never named his wife pre-fall, only after. And if you pay really close attention, God specifically commanded Adam to name all of the animals. God never asked Adam to name Eve. So why did he do that? I don't know. Bible doesn't tell us. We could guess, we could speculate, but that's all it would be. So this idea that Adam named Eve, therefore he was exercising his dominion and authority over him, it's just not borne out by the text. And unfortunately, it causes us to read way too much into um, what the Bible does say. It gives me so many questions. Like before the fall, before she came to that tree, like was he walking around saying, hey, woman? <laughs> like, 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 what was happening right I mean, there? he, yeah, probably. Like most, most probably. Like, hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I, yes, exactly right. Exactly right. I see you. <laughs> okay. The third piece of evidence from Genesis 2 that's often pulled out um, is the fact that the woman was created from the man, okay? So we see that in uh, verses 21 through 23. So complementarians will say, okay, but women were created from man, and that indicates that they have some sort of derivative status. Uh, early on, frankly, uh, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith too taught that women did not bear the image of God directly, only derivatively. Um, that like, because Eve was created from Adam, yes, she bore the image of God, but only because she was created from one who bore the image of God. She didn't do it directly. She's kind of like the moon reflecting the sun, right? Um, mo no serious modern scholars really hold to that. I mean, there are certainly some very 
conservative nutcases out there that would still teach that. Um, but that's not what complementarianism teaches today. It's that um, she was created from men. She was second in temporal creation. And we're supposed to take some clues from that. Man was here first because he's supposed to be first. Woman came second because she's second in line. She's the helper. She's the azer or whatever the case may be. All right. Her existence is derivative and even dependent on the man. Um, complementarians would say like the woman couldn't even exist without the man. Okay. But what's important to recognize is that neither of the humans were created what we call ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. All right. That means out of nothing. It's Latin. It's also a very well-known vineyard in BC. Um, it is. Yes. Uh, so, uh, both Adam and Eve were fashioned or formed out of pre-existing matter. So God spoke the universe ex nihilo out of nothing, de novo creation, brand new. Okay. But then when he gets to man and when he gets to woman, he takes something that already exists, the dust of the earth and the, the humanity that he had already created. And from those raw elements, he makes something, he fashions something. In fact, the word that's used here in Genesis 2, 21 through 23 is not God created man and created woman. It literally says he made them or fashioned them, right? He took these elements, put them together, all right? So neither of the, neither of the humans uh, in Genesis 2 were created out of nothing. They both came out of raw materials. So if we want to, again, take this idea that because Eve came from Adam, Adam is over Eve, then we also have to carry that into Adam's creation. Adam was created from dirt, therefore dirt is greater than Adam. But what does God say? Although Adam was created from the dirt, Adam was called to rule over the dirt, right? So like, again, there's a logical inconsistency with how we're interpreting these verses if we come at it from this particular uh, perspective. The other thing to consider is that in Genesis 2.23, Adam's words are, wow, this is woman. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. The, that phrase, those statements, they indicate sameness, not superiority. You know what I'm saying? He's like, it's often been said, and it's a little cheesy, but it is true that um, when God created woman or the first woman out of the first man, he didn't take her from his head because she wasn't meant to rule over him. He didn't take her from his feet because he wasn't supposed to step all over her. He took her from his side, the place that's close to the heart, under the arm. It's the place of protection and intimacy and um, even um, equality in a sense when you have your arm around somebody right? When we look at the creation of Eve, we see the, the theme of sameness, the theme of equality again and again present. Um, you really have to stretch and reach to read into these things, the idea that she was somehow supposed to be subordinate to him. The final thing that's pointed out here in Genesis chapter number two is that man was created first. Okay. We hinted at this a second ago. We talked about the fact that he was first on the scene um, in verse number eight. We read that man was created and Eve didn't come along for quite a long time after that. But there's a lot that you need to consider. A, God said it wasn't good until Eve came along. And that word good means proper. It means right. It means fitting. It means appropriate the way that God intends it to be. So the fact that she came second, you could also argue it wasn't until she came second that things were finally and fully good. But, you know, the, the only real argument you need here is that if the if being first on the scene means that you're first in authority, if Adam being created first means that he has authority over Eve, then the animals have authority over humans because they were created before humans ever were. John the baptizer had authority over Jesus because he was here before Jesus was. But of course, what did John say? There's one that comes after me whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, right? And Joanna would have had priority over Peter at the resurrection because she was at the tomb long before the man ever was. So again, this idea that simply because the man was created first and the woman was created second indicates that she is somehow um, subordinate to him. It just, it's logically not borne out by the text, all right? So that's the creation side of things, okay? This is the first major movement of the Bible is creation. It's only two chapters long. 
Then we get to the second major movement of the entire Bible, and it's curse. And it's one chapter long. It's like basically the only movement of the Bible that's only a single chapter. Uh, Genesis chapter number three, verses one through 24 is the full passage. I don't have the full passage on the screen because it would take too long to read, although each of those verses really do bear on the things that we're going to talk about. But for the sake of expediency, if somebody will read those verses for us, we'll kind of dive in. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Yeah, there's all this wordplay that's going on here, right? So it's like, you know, to Adam, he said, from Adam you were taken, and to Adam you will return. There's like all this really cool, interesting wordplay here. But this is obviously uh, what happens after the man and woman uh, eat the forbidden fruit. They're straight busted by God. And he pronounces judgment first on the serpent, which we didn't read just now, but then he pronounces um, a curse on uh, the woman and on the man. Now, just as with Genesis 1, we see themes of equality throughout this passage. So like there are a few things that are going to be different and some ways in which the woman is singled out, the man is singled out, but there are still these very prominent themes of equality. So in verse number six, we see that Adam and Eve were equally tempted. That's the the first blank there. They were equally tempted. So although they weren't tempted, um, like the woman was tempted first, Adam was equally tempted. He gave in in the exact same way that his wife did. Uh, Second, Adam and Eve were equally guilty. In verse number six, we see they're both ashamed of what they've done. They they both have shame. It's a plural uh, description that's used there. We see that uh, in verse seven, Adam and Eve were equally ashamed. I mentioned that. So tempted, guilty, ashamed. And then in verses 22 and 23, we see that they're equally punished. So they don't have the exact same punishment, but they are both punished. Does that make sense? They're, and in fact, the big punishment, the, the real punishment behind all of this is twofold. One, they're never going to be allowed into the garden again. And they both bear that punishment exactly the same. And as a consequence, they're not going to be able to eat from the fruit of the tree of life, meaning that they are now going to experience physical death. So they've experienced spiritual death. Now they're going to experience physical death in the future. And they both bear those um, in the exact same manner. So they were equally punished in verses 22 and 23. But then lastly, and this is something that often gets overlooked, but I do believe it's really important. It's not on the screen, but in Genesis 3.21, we read that Adam and Eve were equally graced by God. Grace, that's the last blank. Because in Genesis 3.21, what we read is that before God kicks them out of the garden, he does something special for them, a sign of his love, of his provision, of his grace, despite their sin. Anybody know what he does for them? He gives them clothing, right? So he he slays. God kills animals, skins them, and gives the skins to Adam and Eve uh, for clothing to cover up their nakedness, to protect them from the harsh world that they're about to go into. So Adam and Eve are equally tempted. They're equally guilty, equally ashamed, equally punished, and equally graced, even in the curse narrative, all right? Now, what will end up happening is that um, complementarians will say, okay, but there are a few things that you can't ignore. There's some really important details here. So they'll say, basically, doesn't the fact that Eve sinned first mean that she bears greater responsibility? She was the first one to transgress. She was the one who led Adam to transgress. And in fact, if you go into the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter number 2, verse 14, Paul specifically says that a woman should not be allowed to teach. Why? Because it wasn't the man who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and then led her husband into sin, all right? So they would argue, and look, there's a, there is a case to be made here that because Eve was first, because she took the lead in this situation in causing Adam to sin, that she bears a great responsibility. 
Does she bear the most responsibility? Does either of them bear more responsibility than the other? Those are, I think, very interesting questions. So for example, 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul says, it was that dang woman's fault, man. She was deceived. She ate and led her husband into sin. But he doesn't always make that argument because in, um, in Romans chapter number five, this passage that's on the screen now, we see that the apostle Paul typically holds Adam up as the one who's responsible for sin. So if you read here, and, I, and we don't have to read it all, but I've highlighted in Romans chapter number five, verses 12 to 19, there are like six or eight places where he talks about how through the sin of one man, death passed unto all people right? Where is Eve in Romans 5? Like she's completely absent. She's not even mentioned. According to Paul in this section of the Bible, Adam is the one who's responsible. And Jesus came to undo the mistakes of Adam. But then in 1 Timothy 2, he says it's Eve's problem and we need to deal with her sin and transgression. So I guess kind of what we learn from that, uh, if nothing else, is that they both bore responsibility in this. Men and women, they both violated the command. And the fact that one violated first and the other violated second doesn't really matter. So again, this is, um, you know, we always get ourselves into murky water when we try to analogize a scriptural situation with like an everyday situation. But I'm kind of the king of doing that because it helps us to put it in a, in a, in a frame of reference that we can understand. So like... Let's say me and the boys are out one night. We're getting a little wild. We're like 16 years old. We're just out running the neighborhood looking for trouble. We see a, 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 an abandoned building. We're like, we're going to break into that thing and see what's going on. So my friend breaks in first and I follow him after. The cops show up. If I say to them, he went first. He's the one that's really at fault. I just followed him. The cops aren't going to give me a break. You know what I mean? Because when we transgress, being the first to transgress doesn't matter. The fact that you transgress is what matters. And so it's the same thing here in Genesis 3. It, it really doesn't matter that Eve was first and Adam was second. They both broke the law. That's the point. That's the emphasis here. And the fact that the Apostle Paul, depending on what he needed to communicate in the moment, will highlight one of their transgressions instead of the other means they're both equally culpable. Okay. Um, then we can go further than that. If you look in verse number 17 of Genesis chapter number three, it seems like God singles Adam out in a very particular way. Like maybe God holds in the moment here in Genesis three, God holds Adam more culpable. So again, these verses are not on the screen. You can go back and read Genesis three on your own. But if you notice, he says to the serpent, because you have done these things, bum, 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 bum. You're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat dust. You're going to be cursed. You're going to have enmity between you and the woman's seed. You're going to strike at his heel, but he's going to crush your head. It's like, because you did this, these are all your consequences. Okay. Then he speaks to Eve and weirdly that language is missing. He never says, because you did this, because you led your husband astray, because you ate. He just says, what have you done? And she says, the serpent deceived me. And so he lays out the punishment. Then we get to Adam and he goes back to the same language that he used with the serpent. And he says, because you listen to your wife instead of listening to me. And that's the point here. He's not, God is not saying to Adam, because you allowed your wife to take the lead and that's sin. No, you let your wife lead you into sin. That's the problem. The problem is not that the wife led. The problem is the wife led to sin, right? Um, so we see that God starts to pronounce. He's like, because you did this and it's singular. So in this moment, God is not using a plural. You too, y'all did this. He's like, Adam, you did this because you did this you are going to have thorns and thistles and you are going to work by the sweat of your brow and you are going. And so there's this sense in which God really singles out Adam in a way that he doesn't single out Eve. Now I'll tell you, arguably the strongest complementarian argument I have heard in Genesis 1, 2, or 3 is, it goes along these lines, God singled Adam out because he was the head. He's supposed to be the priest of the home. He should have known better and he didn't. And so he had to be punished more severely. Like that's logically consistent. There's been a lot of complementarian arguments so far tonight that just have not held up. That holds up. Even if I disagree with it based on what we read in the totality of scripture, at least that actually holds up. 
There's one other interesting thing here, um, and and this is one of those areas where we can't read too much into it. Okay, so what I'm going about to, what I'm about to tell you is interesting, and there is some merit to what I'm saying. But again, we're not going to build a whole theology out of this. Okay, in um, verse 17 of Genesis chapter number three, the serpent appears to Eve, and he says, "Did God really say not to eat any of the fruit of the garden?" Eve responds by saying, "No." He didn't say that we couldn't eat any of the fruit. He said we couldn't eat the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, which is correct. She's right. That is proper theology. But then she goes on to say, and if we even look at or touch it, we'll die. Now, God didn't say that. Okay, now here's what's so interesting, you guys. The command not to eat this fruit happens in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2? Do you guys know? Genesis 1 is where God begins by giving commands. Then Genesis 2, we get the specific command not to eat, but it's prior to the creation of woman. Okay? So watch this now. God's giving commands to Adam. Then Adam is communicating the commands to Eve. So is it possible that Adam was like, girl, he said, don't even touch it. Okay? Just leave it alone. <laughs> Maybe Eve got her bad theology from Adam. Now, she might have just been making it up. She might have just been like, oh, no, we're not even supposed to touch it. Maybe. But it's interesting because she didn't have the same information, or at least she didn't get her information from the same source God did. This is why, personally, in the New Testament, I believe anytime the Apostle Paul references Eve, he talks about her being deceived. When he talks about Adam, he talks about Adam rebelling. He talks about Adam sinning. It's like one did it because, you know, she maybe because she didn't have the same sort of information that Adam did. Adam did it full well. He did it knowingly. Perhaps that's the reason God deals with him so directly here. Okay. Yeah, I think that's so good because as I'm sitting here thinking about like that first moment of because you... It's the first time that God is like setting the standard and example of your your desire, your need for repentance. Mm -hmm. Like, and they they were hiding, they were shamed, and um, the need for forgiveness, this desire to be whole and complete with God again. That's the first moment, and and to address it with Adam because He commanded Adam. Yeah. and that's so so important for mm -hmm. us to note. Yeah. yeah, most definitely. Okay. So um, doesn't the fact that Eve sinned first mean she bears greater responsibility? Not from the scriptural record, okay? seems like Adam and Eve were both responsible, and there's a solid case to be made that Adam, if one of them bore more responsibility, it was Adam, at least according to Romans 5. Now, the second point that's typically made here from complementarians is, even if we could agree that pre-fall, before Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, there was gender equality. That was the original design. The fall ruined it. And as Brian pointed out to us, Genesis 3.16 very, very clearly indicates that God has ordained gender hierarchy as a punishment or a consequence for Adam and Eve's rebellion. So it's like, this may not have been God's desire, may not have been his original design, but because they sinned, because they broke his command, now God has said, this is the punishment you guys are going to have to live with. The problem, again, with that argument is it makes a really big assumption. The assumption is that God's command to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, he's going to rule over you. The, the assumption is that that is prescriptive and not descriptive. Those are the two blanks there. The argument assumes that God's words are prescriptive and not descriptive. What do we mean by that? Um, I told you guys in our How Not to Read the Bible series back in the day that just because the Bible records something doesn't mean God endorses that thing. There are plenty of times where somebody is said to do something in the scripture or there is something that transpires. There is some reality that exists in a fallen world and the Bible tells us this is what it is. But that doesn't mean that God wants it that way, that God wishes it to be that way, that it should be that way. Instead, it's just a statement of fact. This is the way the world is. Correct. Correct. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about whether or not the gender 
It, so here's what I would say. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about these words that are used here. God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. That word desire is really difficult to understand or translate. The reason is because it only occurs three times in the Hebrew Bible, and none of them are very clear parallels. Okay, so um, it, it occurs in um, later in the book of Genesis with Cain. Remember Cain, he makes a bad offering and um, he, he basically offers to God what he wasn't supposed to. And so God meets him and he says, hey, you still got a chance to make this right, but you need to be careful because sin is crouching at your door. That phrase that in Genesis was four, I believe, is translated as crouching at your door is the same phrase as desire here in this. Like what is crouching at the door and desire have to do with each other? Like those are not exact parallels. It's been argued that maybe you could make a connection if you think about like an animal that's like a, a, a predator and it's like crouching, it's ready to jump and get you. And your sin is ready, to, it desires you, it wants to own you, Cain. And if you don't take control of this right now, you could fall victim to it, right? Like there's a sense in which that could be true. The other time that it occurs in the Old Testament is in the Song of Songs, and it describes the um, the Shulamite woman's desire for her beloved. It's purely carnal, you guys. It is all about the sex with her, and like that's it. So we've got these weird uses. None of them. Ex it's like you know. I say okay. So interpret unclear scripture in light of clearer scripture. The problem is we don't have much clear scripture when it comes to this exact word. And so how do we figure it out? How do we interpret it? I don't know. What is interesting is that up until 1600, this word was always translated as turning. The word was turning. So the way that you would have read this for the first 1600 years of Bible translation is your turning will be towards your husband and he will rule over you. If that's the appropriate translation, and I'm not saying that it is, again, I am not a scholar, okay? If that's the appropriate translation, what the verse might be communicating is, Eve, your turning is going to be away from God and towards your husband. You are going to start looking at him to give you things that you were supposed to get from God. And because he's not equipped to give you those things, there's going to be dysfunction in your relationship. Your husband is going to rule over you. This word rule is also a very interesting one. There are Hebrew words that kind of mean like a benevolent kind rule. Then there are words that are like more forceful and like I'm going to dominate and I'm going to take over. And this one kind of falls right in the middle. But I think the best way to understand this particular passage is Eve is going to be trying to get something out of her husband that he's never going to be able to give. And Adam is going to be a, trying to get something out of his wife that she's never going to be able to give. There is a broken relationship now between men and women. There is gender dysfunction. I don't think that this passage is teaching that there's supposed to be a hierarchy. I think it's teaching that there is going to be dysfunction. There's going to be problems now between men and women. Is it prescriptive? Is God saying, from now on, you should desire your husband, but he's going to rule over you. And that's a good thing. That's what I want. Or is he saying, I, I'm just telling you guys, because sin is now, an, it, it is like you're never going to get rid of the sin nature and sin is never not going to be a part of your personal relationships. As a result of that, there is going to be a brokenness and you just need to know it. You done goofed. Okay. Um, that is the key interpretive question that's here. Go ahead. Yep. Um, so in regards to like prescriptive and yes. descriptive, so mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong in what I'm like getting from this, but mm -hmm. I'm thinking descriptive as in like this is the natural consequence. Like yeah, this is when you have unprotected sex, you get pregnant. Correct. So you know, like this is the natural consequence. Yeah. So then, how come it says I will multiply your pain mm -hmm. in childbirth? Yeah, it kind of sounds like I'm going to do this. To you. Totally. Yeah. You said so. I'm going to do it. Correct. Um, so what I think is what God is saying is I have already established an order of things. And it's like, if you guys break the law, the spiritual law, then there are these consequences, right? Um, we're going to find out. In fact, we can go ahead and answer the question now. What does God want humanity to do with the reality and consequences of the curse that we live under? Are we intended to accept those as that's just the facts of life? Or... Are we intended to reverse the curse? 
are we intended to try to bring humanity back to the original state? Is God's intention for us to bring heaven down to earth or to continue to live in hell on earth? Um, that I think is a really key question in understanding because even if God sets these out as punishments, that doesn't mean that God doesn't also want us to address or to ameliorate some of the suffering that's caused by those punishments. So here's a good way to think about it. There are five uh, pronounced curses on men and women in this passage, okay? So pain and pregnancy and childbirth is one. Uh, thorns and thistles from the earth is another one. Hard work just to survive is a different one. Sickness and death is the fourth one. And then this one that we're highlighting is broken gender relationships, okay? Now, catch this. Humanity has spent an awful lot of money and effort to reduce the consequences of the first four. So like, I don't know any Christian women that say, well, you know, it's a consequence of the curse. It's supposed to hurt. No, I don't want any medication, doc. I don't know any man that's like, nope, God said it was going to be hard work. So I'm not going to use a backhoe. I'm just going to get a shovel and I'm going to dig this thing by hand. Uh, I, I don't know anybody that says, nope, God said there were going to be thorns and thistles, so I'm not going to weed the garden. That's just how it's supposed to be. It's the facts of life. We just have to accept it. It's God's judgment. But yeah, <laughs> it may be actually, but I don't know if you intended it that way. Um, listen, when it comes to sickness and death, like we spend so much effort and money. If I'm sick, I don't think to myself, well, I live under the curse, so I guess I just have to accept this as a punishment from God for my sin. No, I take medicine. I go to the doctor. If they say you have cancer, I'm going to get treatment. I'm going to try to stay alive. I'm going to do the things I need to in order to not experience the full consequences of the curse. Now, whether or not this is theologically correct, and, and I could be wrong. I am so quick to admit that. It could be that God, God is like, you guys, I told you, you're supposed to deal with the consequences of your action. It might be, okay? But it's inconsistent for us to try to alleviate the symptoms of the curse for four of these things. And then for the fifth one to say, sorry, ladies, it's just the way things broke. You, you, you deserve this. Your lady was the one who sinned. Your lady was the one who violated the command. You just have to accept this. If we're going to be consistent, then either we need to try to address and ameliorate the, the curse in all of its facets or in none of its facets. So again, what we're talking about is whether or not the curse that's pronounced on Adam and Eve, and in particular Eve here, whether it's prescriptive or descriptive. And I think we all treat it like it's descriptive. We all want it to be descriptive. So if we're going to be uh, consistent, we need to interpret it that way. But anyway, um, here are a couple of reasons that I do believe it's uh, descriptive and not prescriptive. First, don't forget, okay, Genesis 1 and 2 is the chapter, it's the section of the Bible in which God outlines mankind's roles. This is when he gives us our basic instructions for being here on earth. If you compare everything God pronounces in the curse in Genesis 3, like hard work, thorns and thistles, broken relationships, pain and childbirth, all of that, it ties in perfectly with the commands he gave them in Genesis 1 and 2. So be fruitful and multiply. Well, now under the curse, you're going to do that but it's going to be painful. Fill the earth and subdue it. You're going to do it, but it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. So you can actually map all of those curses in Genesis 3 directly back on to Genesis 1 and 2 and what God tells Adam and Eve. So here's the question. When we get to the New Testament or even throughout the rest of the scripture, which of these narratives is held up as normative? Which one is held up as like the ideal that we should be pursuing? So we go to the New Testament, to the Gospels, and Jesus speaks several times on the subject of male-female relationships, in particular in relation to marriage, but that's okay. It's ultimately about male-female relationships. And when he quotes the Old Testament, he quotes the book of Genesis. Does he quote Genesis 1 and 2, or does he quote Genesis 3? He quotes Genesis 1 and 2. Don't you know that in the beginning, God created male and female? This is why a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So when Jesus had the chance to describe God's ideal for the relationship between men and women, 
He could have talked about it in terms of Genesis 3, the curse, gender hierarchy, subjugation of women, the headship of males. He could have done those things, but he didn't. He talked about it in terms of the equalities that we read in Genesis 1 and 2. I think that is supposed to be instructive to us. We can't overlook that. Now, I will say, we cannot overlook the fact that Paul, he upheld Genesis 3 as normative, at least for these two churches that we talked about last week. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the future discussing why Paul used Genesis 3 in order to justify women being silent in the church at Ephesus and the church at Corinth, and why I believe he intended that to be a local prohibition on a specific congregation, okay? Why don't we pray? Um, and then, uh, like I said, we'll send you guys notes and um, we'll, we'll see you next week. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Old Testament examples of women that led and led in big, audacious ways. And um, they're going to be very inspiring, I think. And probably there are some stories that you're not super familiar with. So look forward to meeting with you and talking through those things next Wednesday. Mm-hmm.